Letter four. Right. Let's talk about evil. What do we know? Can you keep it in a cupboard? Don't think so. Can anyone see what it is? No, they don't. So, how do we know what it looks like? I know. Ask someone who's been to school. Not good enough. Does anyone go around saying, look at me, I've got my diploma in evil? No, they don't. You can't even get arrested for it. There ain't no law against it. Am I right? Shall I tell you why? Cause evil ain't a fucking thing. Frank Furness reads the Daily Mail, no matter what. He reads it religious every day. I goes to him, Daily Mail only sounds like Holy Grail. There ain't sod all that's holy about it. I says to him, it's pure bog roll. I tells him next time he should wipe the shit off before he reads it. Evil this, evil that. Can't they fucking spell? Not once do they put the D where the D belongs. Cause it's devils we need to worry about, not evils. Read scripture. Furness was making believe I weren't there. In the end though, he sags. From behind his paper he says, You know what, Marley? You could be chewing on wasps for all the twaddle you talk. That is Furness all over. Only, cause he's Glaswegian, he knows all about spouting shit. You're the expert, I tells him. I leans back in my chair then, to let him know I am better than he is. He wants to find out what I think about and who I talk to. He wants to know what chemicals I take when I talk about what I think about. He's biding his time. He's licking his fingers. He's turning the pages slowly but surely. Cause Frank is hoping all of this will unsettle the stunning little gobshite he's got in front of him today. Think again, Frank. I will tell you about what I think about, but I ain't totally bonkers. I ain't saying to Furness what really goes on in my brains. And he knows it too. That's when he puts his bog roll down and stares at me like I just sailed in. Does he blink? Cause I don't. Did you play that at school? I could win if we played it now. Even if you smoke a fortnight's pay and dazzle, you will not get near me in games of no blinking. The secret truth is, nowadays, I don't do my favorite tipple no more. It don't fucking work. Nothing happens. It used to be I could only ever think of getting stoned out of my brains. I call this getting dazzled, cause it makes you blind in the eyes. Back along, I was on ten bags a day. When I was in London, being Jenny whatever, I did a bit too much dazzle. That's when I died. After they brought me back to life, I swore chemicals was off my list of things to do forever. 
I says to Furness, you fucking blinked. He goes, no, I never. So we sit back and keep staring. There's loads of time. One thing is for sure. Furness ain't going to have the pleasure of coming over all Glaswegian again. Here's what he always says when I tell him I can't like drugs no more. He says, rats don't stop swimming in sewers. Words he pinches out of his daily stale, I'll wager. Furness is a tosser of the toppest notch. There ain't nothing doctors can do about it. Shall I tell you what he always says next? He always says about how he will bet his own granny I'm still doing drugs. Can I take him to court for that? I goes, fuck off, prove it. I leans my chair back as far as it can go. I ain't even close to blinking. No one never beats me. If I don't want them to, my eyes don't shut. There's a gap before Furness cracks. I can see his eyelids twitch. There ain't nothing for it. He ducks behind his headlines. I know he's fucking blinking now. I says, Oi, top notch. You ain't got nothing on me, right? Then, from behind his toe-rag times, I hears his hard man words. You wait, young missy. One day soon, you will come unstuck. Mr. Shit for brains don't know it, but I do get my panics. I won't tell him what they are. That would be bonkers. But I could tell you them in alphabetical order, starting with A is for animals. Are you ready? I bet you're not. We ain't comfy yet. How about I give you my three top panics instead? They have to be my three top for today, though, cause panics chop and change. By tomorrow, they won't be the same. Yesterday, my number three was the blotches on my arm where I spilled a mug of tea. My number two was what if the dazzle I bide for old time's sake is badly cut? My number one was the fact that I got given a cash loan to pay for the dazzle I bide, only I ain't quite flush enough to give it back. Today it's a whole nother story. Right now, my number three panic is how the blotches on my arm ain't cleared up. It looks like shit. I cover my arm so no one can say nothing. My number two is knowing how bonkers and uncontrollable I am. If you could pay me a visit, you would see just how bored I look when I'm out and about. This? This is a whole fucking front. And no mistake. Cause right this minute, my number one panic is, I managed to pinch the Furness wallet while he was lost behind his newspaper. No doubt, he will put two and two together and give chase soon enough. Don't get me wrong, I am scum, I know that. Backed into a corner, I will nick anything what moves. Who wouldn't? Shall I tell you something? 
There's loads of crimes against humanity I never got done for. I could list them if you like. Only, that would take ages on end. I will tell you the first one I ever done. I set off the fire alarm in school and done my thieving while everyone was slipping off like rats. You won't grass, will you? I don't give a shit. You can grass all you like. What I will say is I made it up to impress you. I'll say you was grooming me. I learned my best thieving in London. You needed a hundred notes a day. And that's before you got any dazzle and popped round the chippy for your chicken nuggets. Furness is mostly right about scamps what do drugs for a living. Once we get going, we don't get stopping. But that don't mean he knows shit about the special drugista I turned out to be. For my crimes against humanity, I mainly did creeping into other people's places so I could have other people's things. I suppose you will say this is burglaring, because you are a clever clogs. Fine. It was either burglaring or going on the game. I will do burglaring over bonking any day. Giving a bloke one round the back of a building is the road to Sodom, and it ain't well paid. Not being allowed in people's front rooms, but going in anyway, that will put you on the edge of your seat. And it's a good earner. Shall I tell you what else? Me. Being in private homes, late at night, going through bits and pieces without no lights on, is what Scarly told me was a delicious irony. Only, I didn't know what she meant then. It sounds like something tasty out of an Indian. Don't get me even wronger. I was respectful when I went in other people's commendations. I never made no mess. The trouble was, I liked to stay put, especially in bedrooms. I liked being indoors too much. If you've been kipping on pavements, being indoors is a miracle. You better believe in miracles. I will tell you about some what happened to me after, but that is for another time. Right now, I must tell you about the night I squeezed into a luxury flat through the downstairs loo and crept up the stairway. There was a cat on the landing. It followed me about. We went to the bedroom. That was a mistake. I sat at the dresser when this cat jumps on my lap. So I stroked it. There was enough streetlights through the window for me to see my shape in the mirror. I seen a metal box in the first drawer I pulls open. You might think, a metal box? When will the general public learn to hide their most precious bits and pieces better? I would have to concede this point. But you should spare a thought for the utter shite who has to nick those bits and pieces out of a fucking metal box when she's got a felony on her lap. By the way, when we used to yammer for hours, Scarly would say more bigger and fussier words than you could chuck a felony at. Not like the Furness who pinches everything what he says out of his daily grovel. Scarly was better than that. 
she knew her own words to start with. And what she come up with made you laugh out loud. Then it made you think, even if you didn't know what she meant. That's the main thing. So, while I tell you my side of the story, I will pinch Scarly's words sometimes, to make you think. Soon enough, I will tell you about Scarly herself, but not just yet. Because right now, I'm still Jenny Jinxed. In them days, I didn't know nothing about Scarly and her fabulations. So there's me, typical, in someone's bedroom. And on my fucking lap is someone's fucking cat. I'm stroking the cat with one hand. With the other hand, I need to open a small metal box. I'm thinking, I found the crown jewels here. But only two hands will do if you're going to get your hands on them. Then, the bloke and his missus what lives in the luxury flat I'm robbing clatter back after a night on the piss and start having a row. I can tell you that my number one panic before that happened was getting the crown jewels out of a small metal box. Now, my number one panic was a full-on heart attack on account of my unlawful presence in someone else's rooms. I goes, oh fuck. I squeeze the cat. It yelps. It scratches my legs and hops through the doorway. I couldn't get the window open. It was painted in forever. I couldn't go down the stairs, because them indoors was having their domestic. Do you know what happens then? The fucking men in black turn up. Maybe a neighbor dialed 999 and said, Oi, there's only shouting and abuse going on in the luxury flat. Jenny whatever is robbing. Once they slapped him about, the men in black tells the twat downstairs he needs to piss off and don't come back till he's sober. They clobber the bloke, but they slobber on his damsel. After a while, they get bored with this and piss off, because they got thieves to go fucking catch. Two minutes later, Miss Damsel in Distress is on the phone to her mum in bed. She's in shreds of tears, saying it's all over with him indoors. Imagine how I gasp when she grabs her things and flies off into the night, leaving me on my trembling tod. There weren't no bling in the box. It was crammed with pills and what have you. I nicked the pills. Then I popped downstairs. I nicked a laptop lying around. I nicked some frozen meat in the freezer. When I told Scarly about this hilarious escapade, she laughed out loud. She said she couldn't believe how I was a cat burglar. But I never nicked no cat. Between 2009 and 2011, Charlotte went to university in London. She lived in multi-occupancy accommodation to begin with in Kentish Town. 
During her second year, she moved south of the river to Tooting. In her final year, she lived with Louise Gross at Louise's home in Brixton. This is the period I want to... This is the time I want to talk about more. Charlotte lived with Louise for about seven months before she moved into her own place in Pimlico. She graduated from university without any debts, after which she moved back to Cambridge. In case you were wondering, there were never any financial worries. Charlotte's uncle ensured that she benefited from a trust established by her parents before they died. Following the profitable sale of their Cambridge home in 2004, the assets of the trust increased in value. The banking crisis of 2008 was only a disruption to this trend. The trust continued to be wisely invested and managed by Uncle Jack, who was himself a fund manager. In 2009, Jack agreed to bankroll Charlotte's university education. He settled a generous allowance on her to be paid monthly until she reached 21. The assets of the trust devolved to Charlotte as sole beneficiary on the 29th of March, 2010. He might have thought that she was made when that happened. No more worries. Yet it seemed that this immediate access to wealth was difficult for her. Her enthusiasm for a university waned. She became confused and began to suffer mentally. In July of that year, she was reading for her final dissertation. The plan was to write about the political theories of Thomas Hobbes, a 17th century philosopher I don't think you'd come across. I wouldn't have known who he was either, had I not studied in England. During the summer of 2010, Charlotte was spending many listless hours at the university library, discovering what she could. Then, one hot day, she fell into casual conversation with an older woman, two tables away. Louise was 42 at the time. She was a mature student. She wore flowing gowns. She had a large collection of soft hats. During the more inclement weather, she would drape a dark cape over her shoulders. Because she was generally talkative and pugnacious and laughed a good deal, conversations with her must have been easy. Louise told me she was captivated by Charlotte's beauty from that first moment. It made her try too hard to get to know Charlotte. The harder she tried, the more ambivalent Charlotte became. They began to meet in the Student Union Café. Louise didn't know anything about Charlotte's recent inheritance then. In retrospect, she speculates that coming into so much money so suddenly might have unstudied her new friend, making her more capricious. They found a way of talking comfortably by focusing on their respective studies. The link was Thomas Hobbes. Louise encouraged Charlotte by saying that before she could understand his politics, she needed to know the man. Louise's doctoral study had its own connections with Hobbes. She was researching the life and times of someone called Margaret Cavendish, who had known Hobbes personally. 
you became fascinated by Margaret Cavendish too. I loved the way your eyes lit up when I told you the story. Like you, Charlotte had never heard of her, but through Louise's knowledge, Margaret would become Charlotte's idol. Or as Louise put it, Charlotte would come to idolize her conception of Margaret. It wasn't wrong of us to explore the connection between Margaret and Charlotte. Margaret might have been the means by which Louise could enter Charlotte's otherwise closed inner world. As a result, Charlotte's dissertation took on new life. She wanted to know everything there was to know. She and Louise talked about little else. They went out for meals, they met at galleries. Charlotte started to wear Louise's more outlandish hats. By September of 2010, she'd moved in with Louise, and throughout this time, Margaret was the recurring theme between them. I found it odd at first, thinking about Charlotte's friendship with Louise in terms of the biography of an eccentric 17th century marchioness. But it was Louise who told it that way. The more I considered it, the more I came to understand how artfully Charlotte could absorb another character, even if that character was a construct of the past. As I recollect these details, I am acutely aware of my own upheaval, which became the upheaval for all of us. I still ask forgiveness. I suppose I'll always feel a need to be forgiven. I found out too late that once you've left the people or places you love behind, you can never return. Seeing you again brought this home to me in a pronounced way. When we were last together, I would have been reading you fairy tales at bedtime. Time is irreversible, scientists say. We all wish this wasn't true, I think. I felt incredibly lucky, though, to be able to indulge you again with the tale of Margaret Cavendish. She became one of a number of maids of honor to Queen Henrietta Maria. She was socially unskilled. She was too shy to communicate in any openly refined way. She came to loathe courtly life and all of its intrigues. That's how her life was turned upside down. We have to picture Charlotte engrossing herself in each of these facts about Margaret. She did it with an enthusiasm that made her all the more adorable to Louise. She seemed to want to be an incarnation of Margaret, and Louise was happy to fan the flames. But the relationship had a caveat. There was a line which Louise instinctively felt could never be crossed. Early on, she discovered two things. The first was that she was in love with Charlotte. The second was that in order to remain in love with Charlotte, it was essential never to reveal it. The key point is this. Although Louise was able to get close to Charlotte, much of their communication remained on a curiously formal footing. Margaret Cavendish was so often discussed that the subject became indispensable. The young woman first found love in Paris. 
Queen Henrietta Maria and her followers were installed in the Louvre. They were settling into an existence of impoverished and tedious exile when along came William Cavendish, Marquess of Newcastle. He arrived from Hamburg. He too had escaped from England. He rode into Paris in a splendid coach, pulled by eight Holstein horses. As a demonstration of his loyalty to the Queen, he presented her with four of his horses. As soon as she saw him, Margaret decided to move herself into the Marquis's line of sight. She was Charlotte's age by then, just starting out in the world and attractive enough for Newcastle to notice her. He initiated a correspondence with her and wrote her clumsy poems. Newcastle cannot have been at his best. He was 53, he was a widower, he'd lost his estates and all of his wealth. His private army, at the disposal of King Charles, had been defeated by Cromwell. Apart from his name, the coach and horses he'd ridden into Paris with were the only trappings of nobility left to him. No matter what she said, Louise couldn't persuade Charlotte to think of the attraction between the Marquis of Newcastle and the demure maid of honour as love at first sight. They argued over this much more than might have been normal. It ought not to have mattered so much, Louise pointed out. Rather than thinking about Margaret's motives in love, Charlotte should have been thinking about Thomas Hobbes. Yet, Charlotte engaged Louise in this impasse all too frequently, entrenching it in ways that made it a feature of almost all their serious discussions. In December 1645, within a year of getting to know Cavendish, Margaret was wedded to him. It was a marriage that would not ordinarily have been tolerated. There were many who counseled against it. The Queen herself, when she was informed of the affair, disapproved of it. Charlotte was delighted with the arrangement. She argued that the collapse of social norms, at a time when the Puritans longed to abolish the aristocracy altogether, had made it possible for a bashful nobody to jump to the level of marchioness overnight. In her made-up mind, it was an opportunity that Margaret seized and exploited to perfection. The more she heard it, the more Louise rejected this. Margaret's unusual circumstances may have had a nurturing effect on the new and vivid kind of behavior she came to display, but that didn't mean that she and Newcastle weren't genuinely in love. Louise felt well informed enough to assert that Margaret's love for Newcastle was real, but this dispute would never be resolved. For many months, the couple lived under its shadow until it became definitive. By the time Charlotte came to draft her dissertation, the rift with Louise had become a ritual. It came to a head one night in February 2011 over a game of cards and a bottle of Chianti. Louise was accusing Charlotte of wanting too much from Margaret. Charlotte demanded to know what she meant. The point Louise had wanted to make was that the facts of Margaret's life did not lead to any kind of inference that she was conniving or cunning in her attachments to others in general, 
and the Marquis in particular. Charlotte snapped back that it was obvious that Margaret had harnessed her disadvantages to be the woman she wanted to be. There was a finality about the way Charlotte could use a cluster of facts to insist upon a point. She was losing at cards when she announced that Margaret was thoroughly depressed. It was obvious. Margaret needed to break out of herself, so Margaret became an exhibitionist. That's what happened. She put on men's clothes. She wore jupes with silk sashes over her dresses. She wore hats with feathers. She behaved as if she was a cavalier. When Louise responded by arguing that Charlotte's reading of history might be a little too personal, Charlotte threw her playing cards to the floor. She grabbed one of Louise's hats and made her way to the door. As she got to the door, she executed a low bow, just as Margaret might have done, rather than curtsy in company. Louise took in the upturned cards on the floor and remarked dryly that it didn't look much like a winning hand. But Charlotte's insistence was as bleak as it was repetitive. Margaret walked like a man because men would listen to, she said. What Margaret was doing was simulating the trappings of power. That's what she was doing. She expressed herself rhetorically, in verse, in orations, in stage plays and fantasies. She became outstanding in her own right, because that is how men expressed themselves, Charlotte said. For every year Margaret remained on the continent, a victim of the war in England, her ambition to be heard was not only tolerated by Newcastle, it was indulged. But as soon as Cromwell died, and it was time to behave like a lady again, Margaret refused to capitulate. That was the nub of the problem, Charlotte insisted. On her return to England, Margaret continued to present herself as an original thinker. So they called her names. They called her Mad Madge. They set about ruining her. It was never about love in Charlotte's mind. Margaret had been a wife to an aging and broken aristocrat, precisely so that she could unburden herself from the woman she was expected to be. It suited her to the core of her being, because she could never go back to the woman she was. When the revolution collapsed, it destroyed her. That's what happened. Without her husband's grand name, Charlotte said, Nobody would have heard of her. 